Hi, my name's Sebastian King. I'm a paediatric surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and today I have the great pleasure of talking with Professor John Hudson. John has been the Professor of Paediatric Surgery at the Children's in Melbourne for the last 20 years and brings an enormous wealth of experience and wisdom to many clinical scenarios. In today's session, John and I will be discussing the assessment and management of boys and girls with inguinal hernia. What's your approach um, in terms of, or what has been your approach in terms of timing for surgery for boys with an inguinal hernia? Oh, 6-2 rule. Yep. Um, uh, less than six weeks within two days. Between um, two weeks and two months within two weeks. Mm. And within six weeks. Six, six weeks, rather. Six yep. weeks and six months, yep. Yep, okay. More than six months, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Mm. It's elective. So... Um, and you re the, and the rationale the reason, behind that? Because the earlier they are, the younger they are, the more risk they are strangulating because the external ring is a very narrow V-shaped slit um, right at the beginning because it's just a gap in the external oblique uh, fibres and it's got a very tight apex, very narrow, sharp-edged fibrous apex which um, catches the bowel very easily. But once the hernia's been there for a while, um, when the child's older, the external ring starts to stretch a bit and the chances of it actually incarcerating decrease the older the child is. So it doesn't mean it can't happen later, but it's just much less likely. So the, the commonest risk for, you know, incarceration in inguinal hernia is when it first presents, you know, in the first few weeks. Mm. And then they need, you know, if you see a two-week-old baby today in the clinic, it really needs an operation tomorrow or the next day. Yes. If not, straight away. Mm. Would, you, would you agree that um, if, you, if you're able to reduce the hernia then the likelihood of them coming back with a strangulation is is lower. It seems to me in my experience yeah, yeah. that they yeah. if they've if they've presented like if they present strangulated they tend to present the first time strangulated. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yes it yes it is usually. It's so that's often the presenting um, you know uh, 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 circumstance for an inguinal hernia. Uh, they didn't even know about it. now mm. suddenly they've got an incarcerated hernia. Um, and if they're not careful, they might even have, you know, ischemic bowel or even ischemic testis, mm. which is a significant risk. What are the what are the um, what are the tips and tricks that you have for examining for an inguinal hernia in the say in the outpatients? You've been referred a patient with a query hernia. What are the what are the questions that you ask? What are the what are the exam techniques Okay, so well, the history is important. I want to know, is the lump coming and going? Because an average inguinal hernia, the mother recognised, oh, the lump was there this morning, it's now gone. So, so is it coming and going, which means the loops of bowel are slipping into the hernia, making it, stretching it up, and then going back in. Because um, um, when the hernia, when the loops of bowel gone back in, it's often, there's nothing there at all, uh, except... It feels, the somatic cord feels a bit thicker than normal. Um, you might even have the classic physical sign of an in empty uh, processus vaginalis called the sil silk sign, mm. where it feels like an empty silk sleeve, 
where you can feel this sort of membranes, which is the empty hernial sac. But that's a fairly uncommon physical sign. Although in a previous era when hernias got fixed much later relatively, mm. that was a more common physical sign. So that's a physical sign I remember seeing a few times when I was young, but now it's pretty rare because mostly they get fixed so early before the hernial sacs got so stretched that you, when it's empty, it feels like a silk sleeve. Mm. So that's rare now. Yep. But so I, I want to know, have I got a testis in the scrotum um, below the, the alleged hernia? Because one of the differential diagnoses for a hernia is we've got a hydrocele of the cord. And one of the ways you can tell, how do you tell the difference if there's a lump in the groin near the external ring, is that an incarcerated inguinal hernia um, or is this an in, uh, insisted hydrocele of the cord where there's a little narrow patency of the processus and, but it's, it's, it's still partly obliterated just where it goes, connects to the tunic of vaginalis. So it's not going right down to the testis. So there's no water around the testis. So there's no obvious hydrocele in the scrotum, but there's effectively a hydrocele in the cord and a little um, stretch part of the processus vaginalis in the cord. And the way you can tell the difference is that you, you grab hold of the testis and you pull the testis up and down like a monk ringing a bell in a church, okay? So, and asking, when you pull the testis up and down, does the lump move as well? Because if it's an inguinal hernia stuck at the external ring, it doesn't move at all, it's stuck. This is stuck there. But if it's a hydrocele, it moves with the cord because it's just a little bit of cystic fluid containing processes inside the, the spermatic cord. And when you pull on the cord, it, you can feel it moving. And that's quite important because in a previous era when I was on call, you know, if I got a, the registrar calling me, uh, please, sir, I've got this um, baby in the emergency department with an incarcerated inguinal hernia. And I'd say, well, what happens when you pull on the testis? And, and I say, they would often say, I've no idea. Well, I'd say, you better go back and check because if it's a hydrocele of the cord, it'll move with the moving the testis and then you don't need to worry. Yeah. Because often the reason they'd called me is that they couldn't reduce mm. it. And the reason they can't reduce it because it's not a hernia yeah, at all. Reducible. Yep. Yeah, right. Yep. So, but it's easy to tell the difference. But if it really is an incarcerated hernia, um, might be a bit, you might, be, might have, you know, some distension of the abdomen, you might have secondary bowel obstruction, then you need to use the manoeuvre of taxis basically provide some external compression of the sac at the same time you're trying to disconnect the neck of the sac from the apex of the external lingual ring. Remember, it's a tight V-shape, so you need to push the neck of the sac down to the scrotum at the same time you're squeezing the, the sac. And I'm often going like this, pushing, 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 squeezing, squeezing, and nothing looks like it's happening for a while, and they'll sort of go, oh, it's gone. And what would be the situation in which you wouldn't do that? What, what's the clinical When they're scenario? dead. Why wouldn't I not do it? Okay. So, because my personal view, oh, not being facetious, if it was really red and secondary inflamed that tells me 
oh, I might even have dead bowel, which mm. is, have I seen that once in my career? Mm. Okay, That's but for rare, practical purposes, to me, there's no otherwise important contraindication for attempting taxes unless the skin over the alleged incarcerated hernia has been changed by inflammatory reaction to presumed dead tissue. Yep. Yep. Otherwise, it's always worth it. Yeah, worth a trial. Because yep. it saves being able to do an elective operation tomorrow or the next day is much better for the baby than having an emergency operation because mm. we don't even know whether they've fasted because mm. often they're not properly fasted, you know, and that's the biggest the risk for a baby is milk in the stomach. You know, it's the thing that kills babies. Mm. So my view is that if you can put off an emergency operation until we're sure the baby's fasted, not only is the anaesthesia safer, but then the operation's a bit simpler too. So, so with that in mind, um, what are some of the techniques that you've learnt if you've had to take those children to theatre? Yeah. What's, what's been your approach to that inguinal herniotomy as opposed to the standard elective procedure? Uh, my standard procedure, if, I've, if, I can re if it's got reduced, mm -hmm. so let's assume I've reduced it, but it might have been hard work, you know, I was not sure whether I was really going to get it reduced, but we'd recognise that most of the time you can. And the moment you think you can't reduce it, then you won't. But if you think you can, then nearly always you can. But if even if it's hard work, uh, and if there's... If I find blood-stained fluid, peritoneal fluid, in the sac, mm. I'm immediately suspicious. Um, if I'm having trouble reducing it, I might be suspicious. And so... At the procedure, I'm not just going to do an ordinary inguinal operation. I'm either going to open the internal ring laterally with a mini laparotomy, or I'm going to elevate the the and make the incision a bit bigger because you need a much bigger incision for this. Mm. And then I might lift uh, the the skin and the uh, scapus fascia, and then I make a, might make a s second effectively transverse laparotomy incision in the external bleak just above the, the inguinal canal and do what effectively is a laparotomy. Mm. It might be doing it through the same hole, just be a bit bigger. But my view is that if, if particularly you've got bloodstain fluid, you should assume there might be some compromise to the blood supply of the bowel and you really need to see it because when you've pushed it back in, there might be a loop of ileum that might have gone back in, but it might actually have a little necrotic mm. sp spot on the lateral wall, which you need to excise before you get a perforation. Yep. Okay. If we think about the standard elective hernia repair... Yes. ..the situations, I suppose, that which you might have come across is the, uh, the boy that has an absent vas. Yeah. What's, what's been your okay. approach okay, to yeah. that? Okay. Classic exam question. Um, so the likeliest reason is you've cut it. So the, well, the first thing you have to do is ask, can I prove that I haven't cut the vas by accident, even though you're going to a lot of trouble to try and prevent that happening? We recognise it's a risk. Um, so what I would normally do 
is go immediately to the internal ring, stretch open the internal ring with retractors, uh, bluntly stretch it open, and then ask, can I see the vas on the inside of the abdominal wall um, going down behind, under the, beside the bladder, yep. okay? Where the vas and vessels are now separating. separating. So, because that's a bit that I've never done dissection on before. So I'll stretch open the ring and ask, when I look over the edge of the internal ring, now I can see, stretch it open a bit. Um, can I see the, the vas hooking around the inferior gastric vessels? And if I can, then I know I haven't cut it. Okay? Or rather, I might, I might, know, I might mm. not have cut it, mm. but at least I know it's there. It's not missing. Because... Yep. Common reason when you can't find it, even though everybody worries about cutting it, it's actually pretty rare. It's only happened to me once in my career, and I wasn't the surgeon, I was the assistant. Um, helping a junior registrar doing an operation in Scotland, I remember this happening, mm -hmm. and they cut it so quick that I couldn't tell them not to. <laughs> so, and that's actually quite an interesting discussion to talk about, but we'll come back to that. Um, what do you do when, mm -hmm. if you do know you've cut it? Mm -hmm. But the common reason is that it's missing. Okay, so if you open the external, the internal ring, and you can't see the vas at all uh, in the intra-abdominal compartment, extraperitoneal, then it means the vas is missing. And there are two reasons for this. You've either got the Rokitansky sequence, where the vas is missing and the kidney's missing, mm. um, um, because the Wolf induct was abnormal and the ureteric bud didn't happen and you didn't get a kidney. Um, or you've got um, a rare variant of uh, uh, cystic fibrosis, uh, congenital bilateral absence of the vas, mm -hmm. nearly always bilateral, and there's usually a mutation in the, um, the same gene that causes CF, but they might not have CF at all because we recognise that absence of the vas is the most sensitive um, anatomical variant of an abnormal um, Delta 508 um, CF gene mm. anomaly. So mm. you can have absence of the vas, because when you've got CF, the vas undergoes atresia, usually in mid-gestation, okay? Somewhere between 10 and 20 weeks. Mm. At 10 to 12 weeks, when the vas forms, it's present but by 20 weeks, it's disappearing. And by 40 weeks, when the baby's born with CF mm. and maybe often with meconium ileus, it's, it's gone. Mm. Um, but I can tell that. So how would I tell? I would palpate the scrotum and ask, can I feel the epididymis of the, you know, on the ipsilateral side? Because if you've got a, a, a CF variant, nearly always you can feel the head of the epididymis, but no tail. Mm. Okay? Speed, yep. Okay? Um, but... And the other thing is, I'll feel the other vas. I'm asking, yeah. can I go yeah, to the, the neck of the scrotum on the other side? Can I feel the contralateral vas? And at the neck of the scrotum, the vas and vessels are just separated enough that you can roll it in your fingers and you can feel uh, tissues that are going longitudinally through your fingers that don't feel like a little piece of string. The vas feels like a little piece of string. It feels sort of just little 
that you can feel some tissues that you can roll in the in your fingers and oh they're the vessels um, but the vas at the neck of the scrotum is just separated enough because when it gets to the scrotum it starts to separate a bit mm -hmm. at the neck of the scrotum the vas and the vessels just starting to separate so you can feel them separately from the, the from the testicular vessels and if you go to the neonatal ward and put your fingers on the neck of the scrotum of a newborn male, you can feel the vas really easily. But your average surgical registrar has never tested it. So when you ask him, can they feel the vas, they have no idea how to. Well, you just need to practice. Mm. It's actually not very difficult, but you just need to practice in the, in the neonatal ward every time you see a newborn male with whatever's wrong. It's one of the things you should check on because it's a good way to work out can you practice can you always feel the vas because um, that's how you tell um, but if the vas is missing on the other side we've nearly always got one of these cf variants bilateral congenital absence of the vas with a mutation in the cf gene um, but if you can feel the other vas then we're going to have a rokitansky variant usually with an absent kidney on the ipsilateral side and then at the end of the operation, not while I'm doing the operation, but at the end of the operation, when I get the drapes off, I'll see if I can palpate the kidneys mm. before the child wakes up, because then it's fairly easy while they're still asleep. You can feel the kidneys um, while they're still awake, or still asleep rather, mm. uh, fairly easily. Would you, do you send off any of the hernial sac if you're concerned about yeah, the that's answer? Yeah, that's, that's the standard insurance mm. trick. So, um, um, to make sure there's not the vas in the in the peritoneal um, uh, leftover bits that you've cut off. So that's that's sensible. But is it really necessary? It should be obvious. Mm. If you've cut the vas, you should be able to see it. it. You shouldn't need the pathologist to tell you. And you were going to you were going to say about the response to the cut. Oh vas. yeah. Okay. So that's the important thing. Is that what would you do if you actually have cut the vas? Okay, this is a really important question. My personal view, so this is all about ethics, nothing about surgery. My response is I'd immediately take, I'd probably swear, but the parents don't have to see that. But then what I'm going to do, I'm going to take my gloves off and then I'm going to go straight out to the, to the waiting room and tell Dad, Dad, we've had, it, we've had something's gone wrong, we've cut the vas. You need, to, you need to confess immediately. You should never hide it. And you just all you have to do is be humble, apologise, tell the truth, and then what will they say? I can tell you what they'll say. Uh, oh, doctor, it's okay. We understand. Um, but if they find out that you've cut the vas and you didn't tell them, um, the next thing they know, you'll get a knock on the door and it'll be the lawyers. Okay? And your response intraoperatively in terms of repairing, would you? Oh, you just need to. You, you should have your magnifying glasses on, so it's actually not that big a deal. Um, um, so there are a few things you could do. Um, basically, you need some 7O or 8O or something like that, some tiny sutures. You need the magnifying glasses and you just need to join the two ends together. And it doesn't matter how well you do it. You don't need a true microsurgical operation. It's a waste. Because mm. what happens if you just hold the two ends together they join. Mm. You don't need the surgery to do it. The plastic surgeon thinks you need to do this so within the microscope, that's a complete waste.
You just need to hold the two ends together. Because mm. ask yourself, what happens when you do a vasectomy? You, you cut them and they tie both ends. Mm. And what percentage of them rejoin? Yeah, can re yeah. Well, it's because it's biology. Mm. So all you need to do is have the two ends close enough together so the biology can take place, which is it'll rejoin itself. Mm. Yeah, that's all it needs. Mm. You just can't leave the two ends separately. You don't want a big scar in the middle. You just need to hold the two ends together mm. with a 7 or 8 stitch. You don't need one or two stitches, probably enough. Mm. To me, it's not the repair that matters. It's com confessing and telling the truth and owning up is the bit that matters because that's where trouble starts. Mm. That's where all the problems are. As long as you tell the truth, it's yeah, fine. That's going to be fine. We've sort of concentrated on the boys, right. um, but just to think about uh, girls and hernias. Oh yeah. Um, and when, what are the red flags for you that you think something might not be quite right here, even preoperatively? Okay, so the the red flag is a bilateral inguinal hernia containing a lump um, in a girl, and the the risk is that she might actually be have 46 XYDSD with complete androgen insensitivity with testes just at the external ring or in the superficial inguinal pouch just outside the ring uh, in hernial sacs and the and the and the gonad is not the ovary like it might otherwise be it's the testis mm. and how can you tell they feel testicular they feel because an ovary is not spherical or ovoid like a football mm. it's a bit flatter mm. it's a little bit lumpier and a bit flatter okay um, uh, when a testis is ovoid and it's got tunica albuginea it's got a thick white membrane on it and so you can actually feel that of course there's no epididymis um, in a child with complete androgen sensitivity so you just feel the testis there's no epididymis um, but it feels testicular, ball-shaped. And as well as that, when you've got complete androgen insensitivity, it's larger than a normal testis. It's already undergone compensatory hypertrophy, not because the other one's missing. In this case, it's because when you've got complete androgen insensitivity and the female, the genitalia, phenotypically female, because there was no androgen effect, because the, def the defect in the androgen receptor is so great, it's preventing the baby responding to androgen, so you end up with external female genitalia. But the the androgen receptor is which is abnormal is also abnormal in the in the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus doesn't know about the androgen as well as the external genitalia. External genitalia don't see the androgen so that they become female. But the hypothalamus doesn't see it either when the androgen receptor is missing. So it's pumping out gonadotrophins, lots of LH, mm. more and more and more and more LH. What does that do? Makes the testes grow bigger. Mm. So we have compensatory hypertrophy bilateral, mm. which is actually very noticeable. So you have big lumps in the groin in a girl. Mm. If it was a girl, if it was a real girl, 46XX with an ovary, which we recognise is actually quite common, not fully descended, it's just prolapsed into the hernial sac, hasn't descended like a testis, uh, 
it's nearly always unilateral. It's relative. It's it's rare for it to be bilateral. Yeah, isn't right. It? Exactly. That's the point. Mm -hmm. So, bilateral ovaries would be rare. So the moment I've got a bilateral uh, inguinal lump that might be a gonad loose inside the hernial sac, which means it's inside the the tunic of vaginalis equivalent, um, particularly if it feels a bit ovoid, a bit bigger than a normal testis, then I immediately assume there might actually be a testis. Mm. And, and then what I might do, depending on the age of the baby, I would then ask permission to do a rectal exam with my little finger and ask, can I feel the uterus? Because mm. if, if it's got... If it's a girl, it really is a girl, you can feel the uterus with your little finger. It's really easy. And you put your finger in and you feel run up the back of the, of the urethra. Um, um, and then you'll see if it's a normal girl, you can feel the tip of the vagina, which is in uh, the, the cervix through the, uh, in the vagina. It feels like the, the rubber or a razor on the end of a, of a pencil. Mm old-fashioned pencil like I used to have when I was in primary school. You can, so you can feel, it feels like a little lumpy bit on the end. Um, but if we've got complete androgen insensitivity, it'll be missing. Mm. So, because when you've got testes, it's only the androgen pathway which is abnormal. Anti-malarian hormone is completely normal, so the uterus and tubes have disappeared, so there's no cervix. Mm. Um, if I did the hernia, if I got to the operation... Well, I was operation, going to say, you, you've, you've probably had this phone call a few times from around Australia and probably internationally, the, the phone call to say, I'm doing a hernia, I've opened up the sack and yeah, I've do, got yeah. these testes here. What, yeah. what, what, yeah, what's, right. your, what's, yeah. how's, what's your response okay, now yeah, and how has it changed? It hasn't changed that much. Okay. Um, we used to think you need to take the testes out. Hmm? We now recognise you don't actually need to take... We, we took the testes out because we thought there was a really high risk of testicular cancer. And it turns out in complete androgen insensitivity, the risk's actually quite low. It's less than 1%, we now think. Mm. So somewhere between half a percent and 2%. But it's, but it's actually really low. It's mm. not 20%. Mm. Um, so the sensible thing to do is you need... You take a biopsy, you take some photographs... You do the hernia operation, you put it back in, and then you call for the cavalry. Mm. And you just leave it in the peritoneal cavity. You don't need to leave it in the groin. It's better to put it in the peritoneal cavity because mm. we're in the groin, they get in the way because, they, because, because yeah. they've got compensatory hypertrophy because there's no negative feedback on the hypothalamus. Particularly in adolescence, they become quite big and they become really annoying for your average adolescent girl. So the current recommendation for complete androgen insensitivity is to put them back in, in babies, um, not take them out, and then let, let the child uh, develop normally in puberty because even so they'll have really high levels of androgen, enough of the androgens will be metabolised into oestrogen by aromatase, which is an enzyme in peripher peripheral tissues, so if you don't take the testes out, you'll, they'll go into puberty normally. They mm. won't get pubic hair because you need androgen for that, but they'll get breasts, otherwise normal breasts. They'll get female body shape, pelvis 
um, uh, changes triggered by the oestrogen and the oestrogen is coming from the androgen because the androgen gets converted into oestrogen in peripheral tissues uh, in puberty. And we also now recognise that you need the, the gonadal hormones, either testosterone or androgen or oestrogen or, or both, for bone health mm. to prevent osteoporosis, yeah, which is now a much bigger issue. If you take the gonads out, um, it's actually harder to prevent the osteoporosis as an adult female, we now recognise, that we didn't know mm. 20 years ago. Yeah, when they were removing them. Yeah, we yeah. used to take them out because yeah. um, the parents said, might get cancer, let's get rid of them because this is we've got a girl, not a boy. So everyone wanted, wanted them out. It's otherwise a very simple operation. But inducing puberty artificially with hormones turns out to be a bit unpleasant for a girl. It's much better. It's bad, it's bad enough having puberty normally without having to have hormones. Mm. So if you can leave the girl alone and not need the endocrinologist to trigger puberty, it's much nicer. The only problem is it's easier to, pre to pretend that there's nothing wrong. And so there are families where the testes have been left, on, left in and they've forgotten. They still have to talk to the girl about what's wrong with them. They can't hide mm. um, in a way that might have once been done, thinking they're helping her, you know, protecting her from the mm. reality, right. when in fact, the moment she finds out in adolescence, she'll be really, really angry for the rest of her life because they kept a deep secret about, about her that they never, they should have told her right at the beginning. Mm. And the earlier you tell them, the better it is before they get anxious about it. Because mm. if you tell a five-year-old, oh, they might have to, when they get to puberty, they might have to adopt children when they grow up. It's not that big a deal. No five-year-old's worried about that. Mm. But when they're 15, if you it's suddenly spring that on them, that's devastating. Mm. But it's not the slightest bit upsetting to a five-year-old. It's no problem at all. Yeah. So the earlier you tell them a little bit, commensurate of what they understand about biology, the better it is. So that they know that there's no secret, because um, the trouble with complete androgen insensitivity, um, it's easy to pretend they're just a normal girl with, with no pubic hair and can't have any children when it's a bit more complicated than that. Mm. And they need to know the reality. And once they understand, they're much better, much more likely to cope with that and if you haven't told them until they get to puberty, all hell will break loose. And have you noticed a change in that? Oh, yeah, that's totally changed. Um, often was Gary Warren, my colleague in endocrinology, now retired, um, now the secretary of the alumni, um, was one of the first doctors in the world to start telling people, we have to tell kids when they're young, tell the truth, not mm. try and hide from them. So we've been doing that since the 1980s, mm. okay, telling, the trying to tell the truth, up. okay? Yeah. When there's still other places in the world where they're still just grappling with that. Mm. Now, mm. you know, in the 21st century, when we did that, you know, 30 mm. years ago. So, but there are still a few families that even though we want to tell the kids, the parents don't want to, yep. you know, they're hiding. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Okay. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking at the next session.